of dopaminergic therapy in Parkinson's disease. Uh, first of all, I would like to say that I wasn't quite sure of, uh, of your background, of many of you. If somebody doesn't understand or I'm using words that are not very clear, just, just stop in and I'm happy to explain what, what it means. So, um, in particular, I'm going to talk, obviously, as, as Chris said, uh, my main interest is imaging in, in, uh, um, with PET. So, what why a complication of treatment with Parkinson's disease and why dyskinesia in particular? Uh, recently, the Parkinson UK, Community Parkinson UK, um, commissioned an audit and asking the patient, the Parkinson patient, what would they think were the 10 major problems and what they want to be seen resolved by 2019. And you can see here, dyskinesia came up third, so it's still a very big problem for patients with Parkinson's disease. Now, notwithstanding how many years it's still been used in Liverpool, but still the gold standard, the new strategy, the new uh, uh, kind of therapy, but let's face it, Liverpool is still the gold standard in Parkinson's disease and open agonists. And levodopa can be very effective in the beginning. The patient, when they take it at the beginning very early on, they have medication, they can revert, almost completely the symptoms, so they, it could be very effective. Unfortunately, the problem is that as time uh, progresses, the progression of the disease and the exposure to levodopa, the, you can see that the therapeutic window of levodopa narrows uh, further and further, and the patient find themselves either having a, a not good clinical response, so they're off, or they can be on with a kind of good mobility, but in a way, too much mobility, so they have this 
dyskinesia, which can be quite troublesome. The most common dyskinesia are this one, which are called pictos dyskinesia, and occur when the uh, levodopa uh, level are at the highest. It, co it coincides when the patient feels more mobile, obviously. So uh, uh, don't be scared by this kind of uh, complex um, uh, 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 cartoon. It's a try to sort of capture the complexity of what's going on at the level of this striation with neurotransmitters, um, and level here, um, terminals, and all this sort of uh, several receptors, they uh, go all around to make this sort of uh, uh, quite, quite complex. So the, um, there are several mechanisms probably causing uh, this kinesia, but one of those we recognize for quite a while now are presynaptic mechanisms, but it is easy to explain. You can imagine that with the uh, dopaminergic terminal degenerating over time in Parkinson's disease, there is a disruption in dopamine homeostasis, it's a, a, a change in dopamine release, and these have been accepted and uh, causes this condition for a long time. Um, only recently, though, there have been uh, the recognition that it's not just that at this adaptive level, but there's also an interplay of serotonin energy terminals to cause this kinesia, and I'll explain why. Now, another cartoon. So, just to, to show why we think uh, serotonin energy terminals may play a role in this kinesia. Oh, you can see here, just imagine here, these are the, again, the striator, these are the dopaminergic terminal, they progressively degenerated and died. In this situation, the, uh, in the striator, the 5-HD, the serotonin terminal, take a more and more levodopa, so the levodopa that could go, should go to the dying dopaminergic terminal, may go into the 5-HD terminal. Now, these serotoninergic terminals, like the dopaminergic terminals, they have the decarboxylate, so they can uh, produce dopamine as well. However, they lack of the, all the, uh, of the uh, mechanisms that make, uh, like the autoreceptor, the dopaminergic receptors, that make the, the dopamine release very good. And in fact, the release of, of dopamine from these uh, terminals is quite, uh, it, it looks like this. So there are excessive swings in dopamine release. And we thought, and we think that this was be, could be, again, a cause of dyskinesia, because dyskinesia. This has been hypothesized and seen in animals. What they did, um, several, several animals, uh, a loon and other center, they tried to uh, give this animal who had um, dyskinesia, because dyskinesia, an agonist of the serotonin terminal. Now, this, uh, so, uh, these are receptors, sorry, are sitting on the terminal. So the algorithm dampens down the effect, the activity of the serotonin terminals. And what they saw was that by using these algorithms, what you get is a much smoother release of dopamine. Obviously, they had microdialysis to check this uh, release of dopamine. A much smoother release of dopamine, which then it, it, it translates it into an improvement of this kinesia. So this is a, a picture that has been done in experimental animals. <coughs> so now with the uh, Michael J. Fox, with the help of the Michael J. Fox, we wanted to see if this mechanism of the influence of serotonergic terminals in these kinesias is important in, in Parkinson's as well, Parkinson patient rather. So we have the hypothesis that uh, there was a study patient with levodopa induced dyskinesia, lift. Uh, will show higher level of dopamine release following the dopamine challenge than patients without lead. 
Also, we hypothesize that the administration of 5-HD agonists will reduce the abnormal level of dopamine release, and this will be associated with the uh, dyskinesia, with the reduction of the dyskinesia. So the study was done patient, as I said, with hemodopamine-induced dyskinesia, a stable patient, and the study was an acute clinical trial with, it, uh, with this medication, but also a PET study on the release of dopamine. And I'll just stop for a second. Um, obviously, in animal, you can uh, test the release of dopamine by macro dialysis, very simple, very, very good. In, in humans, so you can't do that. So, it can do an indirect measure of dopamine release, the synapsal dopamine release, using a um, this compound, positive emission tomography, a racloprite. Now, racloprite uh, binding to the dopamine, uh, the dopamine receptor, is subjected to competition from endogenous dopamine. So the change that we can see in rachloprid binding, they can be an indirect measure of the synaptic dopamine levels. I'll explain how. So this again is cartoon. This is thinker as a dopaminergic terminals. These are the D2 receptor in the striatum, the with the mechanism. So we do first the patient cover, we do a first scan, we inject a rachloprid. And rachloprid, you can see, will sit, will bind to those receptors which are not occupied by dopamine, by the endogenous dopamine. So you, you can calculate the amount of binding that is with rachloprid in baseline condition. Then we repeat the scan. This time we give to the patient a lipodopa challenge. So they have a lipodopa of, of those. Lipodopa will reduce the increase of dopamine release. If you now inject rachloprid, as you can see, there will be less receptor available with, uh, for the ligand with rapid binding. And by really comparing these two in this way, so <coughs> this is the PET, just to show, this is a PET with rapid You can see the high color, the red, the high color means high binding. So this is a baseline for a patient. And this is the uh, same rapid same PET, not same rapid same patient, following the, uh, the challenge with the Vodop. You can see how from red, this has gone down to light yellow. So it means there have been a decrease. And by calculating this simple formula, the difference in rachloprid after a baseline and rachloprid after lipodopa, we can have a kind of estimate the percentage release of dopamine. So the study was tested for a very simple patient. We came on day one, they all this scale we used to assess the Parkinson off medication. We gave them the lipodopa challenge, the patient turned dyskinetic, the ones were dyskinetic. And we measure this dyskinesia every 50 minutes for 150 minutes after the medication, the level of dyskinesia. Then we repeat the study for a different day, same story. The only difference was that before giving the delivery of a challenge, this time we give we give them a 5-HD1A agonist, in particular the Bucefield, to see whether it could block the excess uh, release of dopamine and so improve the dyskinesia. Uh, we did a, a, a PET as well. This is exactly what I've shown you, you before, a rachloprid baseline and one after the, the challenge, so estimated dopamine release. This time we gave the patient a third rachloprid scanning, a scan, and before the levodopa, we gave the patient again the muspil to see whether again, then we estimated dopamine release, to see whether this buspirone uh, reduced the excessive release of dopamine and improved the dyskinesia. So what happened then? 
These are the release of dopamine, which we calculate in hydroclopride. These are stable PD, and these are people with dyskinesia. You can see the patient with dyskinesia have a high peak, a normal peak of dopamine release following levodopa, which is probably causing dyskinesia. Then if you look at what the patient, so these are the release of dopamine after the 5-HK1A agonist in levodopa. And in patients with stable PD, there's not really much change. But if you look at the patient who has dyskinesia, you can see there is a reduction, significant reduction of the release of dopamine. And also you can see that the release of dopamine almost normalized at the level of the stable PD. Now, these are very well, but did it work in, terms, in clinical terms? So this is what we found. Now, in blue you can see the, uh, this is on the, uh, the scale to calculate the dyskinesia, and this is the time. So in blue you can see that the dyskinesia in this patient follows just levodopa. So there is a quite high peak of the spread in people with dyskinesia. And this in red is the dyskinesia in the same patient, this time after they had 5-HD1A before the levodopa. So and you can see there is a significant reduction of the dyskinesia in this patient. So it seems that the uh, spirals seem to work in a way. So what, when we look at the, all the patients, we saw that some patients had much more severe, much more complex dyskinesia. So we decided to separate them and to see um, if there was a difference between more severe dyskinesia and the more sort of um, moderate dyskinesia. And this is the, uh, again, these are the patients who had a moderate classical picture of dyskinesia. So you can see that a very more significant effect, even more significant reduction of the peak of dyskinesia when you give them new spiral. Unfortunately, if you look at the more severe patients, there is a bit of difference, but not significant. It could be that, well, you know, as, as time goes by, these patients uh, become uh, more severe, and then uh, there are other mechanisms that uh, uh, play a role. Uh, could be also that we need higher doses of this medication, Buspirol, or at least the uh, industry is working on this uh, medication now, on combined 5-1A and 1B agonists, which are more, much more powerful than the 1A only. Or, as I said, it could be that when the Parkinson becomes severe, uh, there is other um, uh, mechanisms like maladaptive plasticity is on screen the set, and the philosophy energy hypothesis on its own doesn't doesn't work anymore. Just to say very briefly that this um, mechanism, this sort of serotoninergic hypothesis, if you like, seems to be responsible, or at least kind of responsible, another type of dyskinesia, the graft-related dyskinesia. This is just a nice graft to serve uh, the stereotype implantation of human penis cell. I don't know if you are aware, but a few years back there were several two or three trials in the States of uh, fetal mesencephalic cells in Parkinson's disease. And one of the reasons why uh, the trial were stopped and thought not viable was that the patients started to develop the dyskinesia, graft-related dyskinesia, involuntary movement. And, and so they thought, well, it's difficult to cure the dyskinesia. Uh, so. But we think that this could be due to the serotoninergic neuron as well. So this time we did a study in patient heart transplantation and had developed dyskinesia, and we used a different tracer, this tracer here called DASP. These tracer bind to the, seroto the uh, serotoninergic transporter and give us a direct measure of the uh, <coughs> serotoninergic density in this striatum. 
So just an example for two patients. So you can see the, this one was transplanted 16 years previously, this one 13 years previously, from the Lung series, so probably now actually, maybe like more 14 and 15. Um, they've been transplanted, they were reasonably okay, the transplanted within them. Mind you, one of these patients was transplanted at that time of already 20 year history of Parkinson's disease. And they were doing quite well, they were taking very little medication. But both of them developed a mild dyskinesia. Sorry, Pamela, did they have bilateral cutaneous transplants or unilateral? One is uh, um, bilateral, and this one has coded as well. But just to give you an example, bilateral, first one side and then the other side. And this one, bilateral coded. So just to show, so this graph shows, so this K in yellow is the level of uh, dust, of serotonin energy density, if you like, terminal density, in the putamer with normal control in patients with advanced, very advanced Parkinson's disease. But look at the amount of terminal de uh, density, 5-HT terminal density in this patient in putamen. So this is really very high, both of them. They seem to have a hyper uh, serotonin energy so it seems that probably the graph, the energy graph, got contaminated by uh, what I mean, the serotonin energy um, and uh, neurons as well, and they grow, and they grow actually considerably, and they may be responsible for the dyskinesia. And in fact, to see if that was the case, we gave this patient who had dyskinesia the buspirone again, the 5-HD1A agonist. This is the uh, placebo. This is the one of the patient, patient number seven. So this is the dyskinesia over time with the placebo clinic. They're very fluctuating. They know it's not just big dyskinesia. These are more sort of fluctuating up and down. And you can see the placebo doesn't mm -hmm. do anything. Um, and this is actually the dyskinesia score, which is goes down when you administer the 5-HD1 agonist with the least three uh, consecutive dose. There, is, there was a clear benefit. And this is the same in another patient. Now I would like to show you, if I can, how to do this. Click on the video with the mouse. Oh, with me. With that directly. Oh, no, the other one. With that. Click. Mm. Click. Click. So this is just a patient who had the transplantation, one of the two that I showed you before. I should talk to you about. Um, and uh, had the transplant, look quite well, 16 years after transplantation, not bad. But you can see these legs have this sort of almost constant. Um, they're slightly different as well from normal lipodopal dyskinesia. In this case, uh, yeah, it's more the leg. But some people have arms as well. It's just not. Um, it's happened in this one. Where's the thing on? And this is the same patient. Should I stop him? And this is the same patient after we treated him with the uh, three doses of the uh, agonist. Now, you can see that the, the leg dyskinesia has improved uh, considerably. I have other uh, videos that I've shown up, other videos of a patient who similarly had uh, um, a, a good improvement uh, from the graph induced. This kind of Asia. So, uh, no, I need to go. Now, so we think that, you know, this Tyvesh the agonist hypothesis can be important in this kind of Asia. And as I said before, there are uh, pharmaceutical companies which are now developing 5 um, hd one a 5 hd one b agonist 
for the uh, for the treatment of people of induced dyskinesia. Now I'll move on to a different topic, which is still part of the um, uh, complication of dopaminergic therapy in Parkinson's disease. And with imaging to try to clarify that. I don't, know how, I don't know how much you know about these conditions, impulse control disorder. It's essentially a behavior, it's called a behavioral addiction. And this, this is the DMS, ESM, sorry, rather, um, <coughs> which the definition of failure to resist an impulse to perform a typically pleasurable activity, which then become harmful to the individual or to the others due to the excessive nature, some excessive will become harmful. But there have been this in, 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 the, in the newspaper, in the news, cases like this of patients that um, lost over 300,000 because they developed a pathological gambling, they have uh, hypersexuality, and all that. So, and that, this, as you can see today, is quite a while ago, but interesting enough that we thought that now the Parkinson's population is more aware of this side effect of this medication. I had just a, um, few, a few days ago uh, with BBC where the phone with a program of the man who had uh, Parkinson's and been taking a doping agonist secretly has, has gambled away uh, almost 350,000 pounds before the family realized what was going on and before the connection with the Parkinson's medication was found. So they're still actually there. So what are they, these um, um, uh, ICDs? So there is pathological gambling, compulsive sexual behavior, compulsive buying, and binge eating disorder. These are the four main uh, uh, categories, but there is a lot of uh, other um, slightly different, but these are therefore um, um, major sort of problems. So, how frequent they are in Parkinson's disease? There was a big study a few years ago, and they studied over 3,000 patients that were um, in Canada and in the United States to see what percentage had impulse control disorder. And they identified impulse control disorder in about, say, 14%, so quite relevant. Um, these are the, this is 5% gambling, uh, compulsive behavior, sexual behavior, da da da. Um, this is a bit strange. Usually, uh, gambling come up as a more frequent uh, problem, but I mean, uh, not important point, 3.9, almost 4% had a two or more ICDs. So why this patient develop this problem? What's going on? Luckily, not all of them. So there are personality and personal risk factors such age, younger patients develop this problem more than the older. Gender, male, five, 5.7, but this is a bit, uh, it's true, this actually, this figure is true for uh, pathological gambling and hypersexuality. Interesting, compulsive shopping, and is more frequent in women than men, as you would expect. Family history of alcohol abuse, gambling, and obviously impulsive test, this type of personality, and previous history of alcohol abuse. All these are factors that you need to take in consideration when you have a patient with Parkinson's disease. If you have any of these, it's important to take in consideration. And obviously, oh, a previous history of psychiatric um, condition. However, the greater risk for this patient to become to develop ICD is the dopaminergic medication. Um, 
And since the doppelagonists <coughs> are uh, pose a greater risk than the levodopa per se, and this again has some study, I'm not going into it, but uh, you, you can see here, these are the number of patients who were in this study who were in dopamine agonists and levodopa or alone, and these are patients who were all levodopa alone, so they're quite clear difference. So this is the Dominion study, the one with three, over 3,000 patients. Uh, 340 uh, patients were with dopamine agonists or dopamine agonists with levodopa, only 32. So clearly, dopamine agonists are more, pose a greater risk than the levodopa alone. So what study, what do we know about mechanism of this um, um, impulse control disorder? Uh, not much, uh, I would say. Um, what um, has been obviously um, quite known for, well known for, for, for um, quite a long time, is the, uh, the ability of dopamine and dopaminergic drugs to prime or to increase the subsequent dopamine release in reward circuits, such as the ventral striatum, the ventral striatum, is the core of the reward circuit. And we think that dopamine is obviously important to prime and also to increase the release of dopamine uh, depending on the drug and this compulsive behavior. So that is a study which was done in Canada uh, by some colleague of mine. And look at, uh, they look at pathological gambling and uh, patients uh, without pathological gambling. Just briefly, what they did was, they, remember the Rathlopride study that I showed with you before? So the Rackler-Price study can be done baseline and with a liberal challenge, or can be done with a behavioral challenge like this. So patients were put in the, uh, in the scan in the camera, and in the camera they were asked to do this sort of gambling task, the one that you can see here, very simple gambling task, or losing or, or winning. And also in a different day, they are the control task. And what they found was this, patient who had PD patient with pathological gambling has this sort of quite high level of dopamine um, uh, release in this striatum where when they're performing the, the uh, pathological, sorry, the gambling task, so much higher, much more significant than this, the patient, the PD patient without pathological gambling. So there was a, a surge of dopamine release in the ventral striatum when they were tapping away with the gambling. Follow this, we had a grant for the Parkinson UK to look a bit further into this mechanism of the ventral striatum. Um, first of all, we wanted to know, okay, these patients were actually performing a gambling task, but what about simple exposure to um, visual imaging, visual reward imaging, such as you see on the internet, uh, papers, you can see on TV, do these sort of visual image rewarding with image have an impact or not on these people in, in uh, releasing dopamine ventral striatum? But also the other question was, are there difference uh, amongst the different type of RCD? So this again is the uh, is a cohort of PD uh, um, uh, with um, ICD, PD with no ICD, similar in ages or onset, similar disease duration. So oh, how did you diagnose ICD? Did you just use the quick screening? Yes, quick. Because one thing that we found from our cohort when we sort of looked at this um, is that the quick, you score positive on a single item, 
which is, I think, that my husband thinks I shop too much. Very high, actually, very sensitive, but over-diagnosed it. And uh, we found that we have, when we actually then do a sort of structured phone interview questionnaire, a much smaller proportion actually have ICD uh, according to international classification that is affecting the behaviour. We use the CRIS, and then once we identify with the CRIS, then we uh, there are some other neuropsychological assessments. Constantly no, they were, they were showing 
during the scandal, they had a video in front of them where I showed all this. So, in conclusion, you can say that subtype or ICFRCD may have a different mechanism, mostly probably may have a different trigger. And it seems that the being treated in hypersexuality, which are derived from natural rewards, would be the you know, core part of the natural reward in sexuality, seems to be more susceptible to visual world association that gambling and shopping, which are more learned rewards. And perhaps this is some implication for the way that these patients go to behavioral therapies and in a sense managing these, these, uh, these subjects and to, uh, to possible treatment. And with this, I think, uh, finish. Oops, it's gone back. And, oh, there's the photo missing. Never mind. There is a photo missing on lots of other people there, because there's obviously other people who have done all the work, not me. And uh, these are the, uh, all our sort of sponsors. Thank you very much.